this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. Okay, everybody, I'm popping in here because I kind of made a promise that I might have a little something special for you today. Merry Christmas. and. Uh, what I'm going to leave here is going to be five episodes. These are episodes that I originally recorded back in about January. And this was when the show was something very different, when I was still doing this under further questions. And I thought maybe I was going to do a show about the paranormal. And I had on five friends. And these are five episodes. They haven't been living anywhere since then. So I decided, what better day than today? to drop these into your feed. So if something sounds a little out of date and we talk about things before COVID, well, that's because this was before COVID. So enjoy the episodes. <laughs> Remember what the world was like back then, about a year ago. And uh, I'll talk to you tomorrow when I come back with a new episode. You know, I was trying to figure out, I was racking my brain before this whole time since we scheduled this, where the hell I ran across you for the first time. And I finally figured out like three days ago, it was somebody had turned me on to Boogie Monster podcast. Oh, okay. And you were on there. And then after that, I went and I listened to what you plugged on there, which was your three-part problems of the paranormal. Mm -hmm. And then I was hooked. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. I just... Man, I got to do another couple episodes on that, unfortunately. I mean... Um, I just ran... I mean, it's one of these things where the problems in the paranormal are they're just like any other field. They're all over the place. They're everywhere. Um, it's easy to not stay abreast of everything. I mean, there's so much content out in the world today. It's really difficult for any one person to stay on top of everything, good and or bad. I mean, that's why I'm also doing a thing on Twitter right now where I'm I'm asking just anybody who uh, out of my whole followers list as I'm... My goal is to listen to 100 stand-up comedy albums this year, like audio, mm -hmm. uh, not like watch specials or anything like that. I'm talking strictly comedy albums, like from beginning to end, where I have 45 minutes to an hour <clears throat> of any given day to, uh, to listen. So I'm trying to do 100. My guess is I'll do more than that. But, um, and I need, you know, I'm enjoying the suggestions because even as a comedian, I can't, I mean, especially in the last few years, I can't keep track of the boom and comedy albums that have happened in the last five years. There's hundreds of albums released every year now when it wasn't like that. Um, you know, when I put out my first album 10 years ago, 
Um, I don't know how many albums were being released every year, but it wasn't nearly as many as now. And that's not to say that it's diluted. It's just saying more and more people who should have had the opportunity to have an album come out. The power has come into the performers and the artist's hands more. So, And I can't keep track of everybody that I love. So there's many comedians out there I probably never even heard of or at least haven't heard their album. Or I've heard of them, but I've just never been on a show with them because they're in New York or they're in Australia or Europe or somewhere else or Canada. And I'd never have an opportunity to see them do an hour. I mean, you'll never get to see somebody do an hour in Los Angeles. Um, I mean, it's very rare unless you go to a specific show by one of the like comedians that are at the top of the you know fame game. Um, like those are the really or something. yeah, those are the really the only comedians getting a shot to perform their hour in the major cities, um, at least on a regular, somewhat regular basis. Um, because unless you're like super famous and sell a bunch of tickets to like you know, the masses, you're not getting that shot in the, in the big cities um, to do that hour. And that's why comedians love to go on the road because you get to do your hour there. But so, you know, I'm getting suggestions from comics who I've known for years and I just never seen them do more than seven to 10 minutes. You know what I mean? So um, it's fun to really dive back into the joy and the love of something. But on the flip side of that, there's no way to keep track of, you know, uh, every, you can't listen to everybody on every single podcast or everything yeah. they've ever said that you know turns out like oh is this person a Nazi like what oh, holy like I don't know what the language yeah, on your podcast David Wilcox is. thing tripped me out <laughs> yeah I, I mean a huge fan of his anyways but <laughs> yeah I mean I was a, f- a huge fan of David Wilcox for years um, Jay Widener was another guy I was a huge fan of uh, of his work and and then that just thing I think kind of just I mean I was really surprised by the way that spun out. Um, with just personally my interactions with him later after these uh, those episodes even went up. Yeah, that comment to say hi to... What was it? Say hi to Corey? Yeah, that's like... I mean, who do you think I am? That's a dude? weird dig like, after like being so... What seems like polite for the rest of the message that you were talking about. Yeah, and then going on about... Uh, you know, he... he you know, I don't know if I mentioned that in the uh, episodes or not, but you know, Jay Widener, who was in charge of programming over at Gaia for years, which is like the new age Netflix... You know, turns out was a regular guest on Jeffrey Rince's radio show. And Jeffrey Rince is a known and very public anti-Semite, uh, Nazi type guy. I mean, very racist fella. And Widener, you know, and in his intros on that show, Jeffrey Rince would say, one of my oldest, closest friends, which we all know showbiz talk can be a little, you know, right. it can be conflated, <laughs> right? Um, but nonetheless, you know, been a guest on that show a ton of times. And so, which is, you know, not to use this buzzword, but it's extremely problematic, right? right? When you've got the guy who's in charge of programming over at the quote unquote new age, you know, the place for spirituality and evolution of soul and like where people are going to like try to ascend and become their best selves. And we got the truth about aliens and all this other stuff, right? Um, and he's, you know, at the very least, willingly associating with a known racist it's and you're and he's in charge of all the programming it's well, he's like, not anymore right not anymore no oh, it's and good to know um, for people watching that <laughs> yeah it's very good to know <laughs> although you have to question you know if they knew that when he was there is there anybody there still exactly and and like and it and it's just like any other place they've got their internal problems and blah blah mm-hmm. blah 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 and workplace drama so, you know, how do you know? I mean, I was promoting Jay Widener for years before I stumbled upon this. And I stumbled upon it because of one blog entry. And I reached out to the guy who wrote the blog. He didn't want to go on the record. He didn't want to get involved. Um, 
but he did alert me to the fact that Jay Widener emailed him um, after I reached out to Jay, uh, begging him to take down his blog or his article about it because he said he could no longer get work because of it. So it wasn't it wasn't like, hey, I'm sorry, you know, like blah blah blah. This is you know. And it wasn't any of that stuff. It was, hey, man, I can't get work, man. Can you please help me out and take that down? I can't get work anymore. Um, and, you know, and then not to mention blaming what he said on having colon cancer, right? which, you know, that's my like dad, had, yeah, my dad had colon cancer, didn't turn him into a, a racist. <laughs> well, that's like the Roseanne Barr thing with Ambien. Like, hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know, you know, and I don't, I don't truly believe that at their heart, any person is evil or bad. I mean, we learn, we learn our opinions. Uh, every opinion is learned and or uh, indoctrinated into us from some other source or, you know, many of us parrot beliefs and, you know, like we like somebody, they said something. So we just start saying it as if it's our own thoughts. And I do that. Everybody does it. Um, you know, I'm not, every I time I read a book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, that's if I, that's what I tell people. Like, if I haven't changed my mind about something, I'm not reading enough. Um, like, if it's been a while since I've changed my opinion, I'm obviously not educating myself enough. Because um, we should always. I mean, I believe I should always be constantly evolving. But and I'm not into the gang mentality of you know the mob, the internet mob taking people down. That's not my gig. And like the problems with the paranormal three episode miniseries I did for the podcast was. You know, was the closest I've ever gotten to, you know, publicly doing that. I mean, I don't know. I'm transitioning to a place in my life and in my career where, you know, I've always wanted to be kind of devil's advocate, right? And I think it's important to maintain that in a lot of the things I do. Well, that but, trickster energy is really important too. Yes, exactly. And, but at the same time, I'm also transitioning to a place where I, you know, just, you know, in my own personal life, I need to be standing in my power more. And part of that is not standing by on the sidelines, biting my tongue when I see something that's wrong. Right. Um, and especially, you know, trying to be more responsible with a voice. You know, I'm not going to, it's not like I want to, you know, be Michelle Williams or, or some of these people that every time they get an award, they use that platform to like speak out against whatever. Um, you know, the hypocrisy in Hollywood is well documented. We don't need to go into that. But, um, it's there is something important about feeling proud to be a member of a certain community and and when that shit starts to become like embarrassing to be a part of a community because of like the big voices in that community that do not represent everyone else in that world um that's like for me like that's the straw that breaks the camel's back well, I think also one of that one of the really important points that you make in that too is how they're setting themselves up to be this portal of of the you know the only source of truth. Like, oh, I was I was visited by the men in black. Therefore, my truth is more important than anybody else's truth, which forces everybody else in the community to either lie or fib to say that they've been visited too, so that their information looks valid as well. Yeah, they're setting unrealistic standards for the dissemination of information that could be useful for anyone else. Right. I mean, that's what you see with politics too, where people, you know, like uh, the whole thing with Alex Jones, he set himself up to be the only portal of truth, right? And look what happened exactly. to that guy. Yeah. And I think the perfect example of that uh, is Donald Trump. He, I mean, it's brilliant what he's done and it's a scourge and it's a disease, the fake news idea. Um, 
but I'm not going to sit here and act like, you know, newscasters like the CNN reporter who came out and said that they were told to say certain things. Like we all know that the news, it's a, it's, it's a for profit business, right? Right. And so with that inherently comes impurity, uh, down to the deepest level. Um, there's nothing, I mean, I don't want to sound like a socialist or a communist here, like, but you know, is capitalism responsible for all the ills of our modern world? Yeah, I would argue probably, but like, I'm a member of capitalism and I, I partake in the system willingly. So, you know, does that make me a hypocrite? You, you bet your sweet ass it does. Well, that's but, the complicated thing about capitalism, right? It's, it's dangerous because it gets out of, out of hand. But at the same time, our ability to recognize these things and the ability to learn all these different disciplines also is a gift of capitalism too. Exactly. Yeah, it's not all, yeah, it's not all bad. It's a weird mix like everything else in life. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's like the really cool thing about life is there's the light and there's the shadow. And, and, and I'm well aware that I have a shadow self and it's not a shadow self that I need to defeat or, you know, cleanse my, you know, my being from. It's a, it's a part that I need to embrace and understand what lessons and, and why is that shadow self even there? And like, you know, in, the, in like the new age woo world um, or the spiritualist community or whatever people want to call it, it's called shadow work and like dealing with shadow self and like trying to understand, you know, as above, so below which is one of the oldest sayings uh, in like magic uh, in like astrology. That was, you know, one of the oldest like religious type statements before even organized religion was around that was going around. Um, but well, it's Crowley like, yeah, I was a big fan of that phrase too. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's something to be said about that. And, and, you know, when, when we stop trying to ignore it or demonize it, um, so to speak, we can, you know, better understand that like, oh yeah, we're all capable of great, great good and also great evil if given the right circumstances. And like I tell people and it's like, I'm not even really joking when I say that like, there's nothing I'm not capable of doing under the right circumstances. Right. What Nietzsche say that uh, given any, the proper why man is capable of any, any how? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's, and it's not, you know, it's not like, I'm. yeah, I mean, obviously... I am, you know, not the first person who's who's thought of it, but it's it's amazing how many people are unwilling to admit that truth about themselves. And you know, it's like I'm not a monster. I'm I'm a person, just like everybody else. Um, but yeah, so I think uh, you know the problems in the paranormal. It's just you know, there's a lot of people out there trying to build a whole new world, uh, a new paranormal community. And it's a long, it's a long process. Um, but there, you know, many of the people I talk to that I really get along with inside of the world of paranormal and esoteric worlds or, you know, the occult and all these like new age things. The one thing that we really get together on is like building a new world that we want to see that's more, that has more diversity. It's more inclusive. Um, it's more open minded to discussion. Um, it is very, uh, it is much less. Uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is uh, maybe definitive or finite and or like as far as like this is the truth of Orth this orthodox you know? yes exactly and we're looking for a more you know just a more loving community I mean when you you know there is oh man I hate to even fucking bring this up because you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to be using that language but uh, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> 
So I'm reading this book right now by Dr. Richard Burke and uh, or Buck, and it's called Cosmic Consciousness. And it was kind of a beautiful synchronicity why I was even led to this book because um, it was referenced in this other book I was reading. And I was like, holy shit, I need to get that book. And then I realized, oh, I've got that book. Someone gave it to me years earlier and I've never opened it yet. And so I'm like, oh, this is the universe telling me to read this book. So I'm quoting it on my podcast. I'm reading excerpts from it so far as I read along. And maybe that's a mistake on my part, like quoting something before I'm finished reading it. Um, I used to make a joke about that actually. And it's now it's kind of coming to truth. So I, I actually released an episode today. Um, and I was talking a little bit about uh, devolution. Uh, and uh, like, and just like musing about the possibility of the evolution of consciousness, and you know, where did it start? How how did we get to where we are? Where is it headed? Et cetera, et cetera. And and you know, and Doctor Buck talks about um, the evolution of consciousness inside the race, right? And it's been a, a general, broad term about you know the human race. And I'll even be like, I know when he says, you know, and it's now keep in mind, this is from the middle of the 19th century, mid to late 19th centuries when this book was written. And he's saying things like, you know, it's, it's coming up a lot. He's referencing race a lot. And I'm like, and so I'll even mention like, I know it sounds kind of creepy nowadays, you know, saying race <laughs> all the time, but he's talking about the human race. And then I finished recording, blah, 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 blah. blah. And then later that night, I continue reading the book. Um, and because I was actually quoting from the book from right almost where I had left off reading, uh, where I'd gotten to. And I continue reading the book last night. And then all of a sudden, the the phrase, you know, blah, 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 in the Aryan race. Pops oh, shit. Up. And I'm just like, don't, don't do this to me, man. Right. And so I'm like, no. <laughs> and so I keep reading and then sure enough, and blah, 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 blah. And the Negroes and blah, 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 blah. Oh and, no. And, but it's now listen, it's the 19th century. You right. know, I'm not going to be mad at the guy for using the word Negro in his writing, but what he's saying about the white versus black, when it comes to race, Aryan versus Negro, when he's talking about races is all of a sudden it's, it's, it's racist shit. And I'm just like, oh, motherfucker. Like, I gotta, now I gotta finish this book so I have a better understanding of what he's really saying and what the implications are. And right. if he was, and if he's really trying to build a case for, you know, white supremacy or not, um, or if he's just, or if this is just one very small part of the book based on, like, I don't know if it's, what is it, if that age time was a Victorian era science, mm -hmm. right? Where, Oh, where they used to measure people's brains to tell if they were criminals by the size of their head. Yeah, and and just by default of being one of the affluent white people of the time, and I mean, he was born in Canada. Um, this guy, and so it's like if if it's just a result of being the affluent white class, which was inherently racist, whether they even had the you know without even like being able to have the self-awareness to really understand that they, they were wrong in the way they were thinking, right? right? Yeah, if you've never seen non-racism, you don't know you're racist. Yeah, which isn't a cop-out because I think once you become an adult, you should learn to think for yourself. Um, but at the same time, like, okay, so what is the level here of, of the racism that this guy may or may not be getting into and like also propagating in written form as a doctor, right? Uh, which gives him credibility to so many people. And even though the book is about cosmic consciousness, right? And how, um, 
you know, certain people have reached it. And, uh, you know, that's where the evolution of consciousness is going from like animal, not having any like really self-consciousness at all, all the way to cosmic consciousness. And like he argues like Jesus and, you know, Muhammad and even Walt Whitman, um, is, is one of the references he makes of, of someone who, but he's also mentioning how like they have to be like how chances are. And then I, I stopped reading last night cause I was falling asleep and I was really upset. And, and he also, and I, I left off at the part where he said, you know, cosmic consciousness is found mostly in men. And I was just like, Oh mother <laughs> fuck. Like this asshole. Now I got to read 250 more pages of this shit just to like finish this book. You know what I mean? And, and be able to understand. And then I have to like, you know, how many times am I have to go on, you know, my own podcast and remind people that I finished the book later and now realize that this guy said these things, blah, blah, blah. Cause if someone stops listening to me, you know, after that last episode, they're like, Oh, Ryan Singer loves Dr. Richard Buck. Uh, you know, this guy who was like a known, although, you know, I never really found anything about him being like racist when I did like a very cursory, like general Google search about right. him before I started reading the book. Yeah, it didn't say like noted Nazi or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, well, I, th- I think it, if anything, reading older books, you're always going to encounter that, right? Because um, even Mitch Horowitz, he just recently, in the last few years, re-released Napoleon Hill's um, "Thinking Grow Rich" with a, a gender, like a gender neutral, because it was all focused towards men, and it was just a s- system of that time. You know, that's just the way people thought at that time. Like, well, of course, only men are going to read this because they didn't value women. Yeah, is- women aren't supposed to be reading. Yeah, yeah, they're not yeah. supposed to be educated. That's the way they thought. So, of course, this isn't directed towards them. Yeah, why would you write for an audience that doesn't exist yet? But then it's like a, it's a good thought exercise for us as, you know, speaking of consciousness and like evolving our consciousness. Okay, so this stuff that I connected with was really valuable. Unfortunately, this guy was broken and he took those great ideas and went this way with it. What can we do with this great idea if we went this way with it? Yeah. That's how I feel about books. You know, it's like I steal the parts that I want and I throw the rest away. Yeah, and I think that's a good that's a good uh, you know plan for almost anything in life. My dad always told me when I was younger, if somebody wants to give you advice, you always listen to it. It doesn't mean you have to take it. Right. Uh, there's a big difference between listening to someone's advice and taking it and implementing it in your life moving forward. And you know, at, at the very least, it inconveniences you, and you have to listen to some person. You know babble at you for a few minutes or however long it is that their piece of advice is going to be. And you just kind of nod and say, thank you for your insight. And then you move on with your life. And, you know, they don't ever have to know if you, if you, you know, use that advice or not, but they do know you listen to them and, you know, you made them feel like, you know, you held space for them at the very least. And, um, like the, you know, usually I don't get too topical and like a lot of the things, um, uh, that I'm, that I decide I choose to devote my energy and passion toward because they don't have topical stuff doesn't have shelf life. And so that like that frame of mind that I've used is kind of, it's really shaped the way and the issues that I talk about and the things that I want. And when it comes to the problems in the paranormal of, you know, inherent racism stemming from, you know, the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, which is, you know, a, a fake, made up BS document that it was, fi- was it was supposed to be fictional, right? Yeah, well, it's well, it, it was supposed to be the fictional um, character that's saying it if I remember 
the history. Yeah, of it, well, it's, it, it wasn't supposed to be fictional. I mean, it is fictional, but uh, it's two women who wrote it and they were fascists. Mm. And it was created to appear as a real document, right? To instill anti-Semitism and, and spread that. Um, and it worked. And Henry Ford was a big proponent of it. And uh, like when I was in Detroit last month, I just kept like walking around thinking like Ford. I just had the saying in my head, like Ford built Nazi tough, you know, like built Nazi tough. And, but like he was, he was in the first edition of Mein Kampf, which I haven't been able to get my hands on. And I don't even really want to. Um, but if you find a first edition of Mein Kampf, Henry Ford is the only American like mentioned in the acknowledgements by Hitler. Yeah, he built airplane engines for them too, right? Yeah, he gets a shout out uh, in Mein Kampf. Henry Ford gets a shout out in Mein Kampf, essentially. Uh, yeah, like the Ford factories in Germany were bombed during the war. And then if I'm not mistaken, Ford later sued for damages and, and won, uh, which is insane. Now, now, granted, when a country like Germany takes over and declares into a war state, you have a plant there. What are you going to do? Be like, no, uh, we're inside your country, surrounded by your army, but we're not going to do what you say. I mean... It's not like Ford has a, Ford has a standing army over there to be able to protect their factory. You know what I mean? Right, especially with the, against that kind of government. Yeah. So when like the Nazis decide to commandeer your factory and use it to make their vehicles, um, one could argue, what are they supposed to do? You know, or, you know, it doesn't mean they have to do it. You know, they could maybe it wasn't Ford employees building it. You know what I mean? Maybe they all just got left the country right. and then and the Germans took over the factory and started using it because of all the equipment. The people weren't important. The equipment was, but um, now I'm sure some expertise in being able to use the equipment would be important. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not an expert on all that stuff and like know that, know all the history to, to know. I just, I, the only thing I do know for certain is that Henry Ford was a piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, there's no bones about that when it comes to his views on Jewish people and, you know, the supremacy of, you know, the Aryan race. Um, so and, yeah. And the danger of propagating so publicly something that I'm sure he was not a stupid man. I know that from what he built that he knew was false. I mean, have you, have you read, um, Diana Pazulka's book, American Cosmic? No, I have not. So one of the things that she talks about in here that would be interesting for you to go into with problems with the paranormal, another side of it is pers- purposeful falsification of things. Um, she talks about how she has been witness to like television programs. Um, so uh, essentially, before I go any further, the, the book is about she sees the belief in extraterrestrials as being basically becoming a, a secular religion. And she's a religious studies expert. And so in, in her process of studying the phenomena, she's seen people purposely falsify, falsify things, in particular on extraterrestrials, for television. And that, I mean, that purposeful falsification and misleading of people, that's, you see where it goes with this situation, it's so dangerous. Very dangerous. And that, you know, these people, not only are they propagating it, but then they're, you know, touring the country spreading it and then it becomes part of the truth i just i mean i just uh the last episode before this i just did a a research piece on mothman um specifically through gray barker's book the silver bridge and gray barker was an interesting guy because he was known to completely hoax things and lie and falsify the truth in his books or exaggerate the truth so a lot of things that he created have become 
accepted truths, even though the, we know that they were falsified and that he was, he wasn't a bad person. He was just having fun, but like he was the one who created the idea of the men in black. So now we don't know if men in black is real or not. Really? Yeah. It's in a book. It's called, they knew too much about UFOs. Man. I mean, see, this is where, oh, this is where, yeah, it's such a, it's actually a pretty hot debate in the world of paranormal stuff. Uh, for researchers about falsification. And it seems like it shouldn't be. And I think it's... um, Oh, gosh, where's that book? It's on my bookshelf. Um, One correction. It's they knew too much about flying saucers, not UFOs. Oh, okay. They knew too much about flying saucers. Um, I'm thinking about... uh, I've got too many authors' names in my head right now, but it's called Paranormal and the Trickster. And uh, it's... uh, Oh, I know that book. I'm in front of Google right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got the book on my bookcase. I just can't see it right now. But I, I want to say George R. R. Martin. Is, <laughs> that, that, that's that's <laughs> Game of Thrones. It's like, why is he writing that and not finishing those books? <laughs> uh, George P. Hansen. Yes. Yeah, see, that's why I had the George R. R. Martin because George P. Hansen. I haven't finished this book, but um, uh, but there's a section in the book that I have read where and, and it talks about like in regards to the trickster, and it talks about you know hoaxing. And there are people in the paranormal world who believe that hoaxing is good for the paranormal. And Hansen examines that. And other, <coughs> excuse me, other authors or authors have also examined this issue. Is hoaxing truly bad for the field? And my argument, and I think any level person, level headed person's argument initially is going to be 100% without a doubt. Yes, it is bad for the field. Right. And the counter argument from people is, well, you know what? Any, any, it's almost like any press is good press. Mm-hmm. That old argument. That's definitely and, what they're doing with a lot of these television shows. You know, all exactly. these scare things on, on ghost shows. Like you don't get that many experiences if you're really going out there. You know, if you get one EVP, you're lucky. That's why I love Hellier so much. Yep, and exactly. that's why that's why Hellier is such a divisive show for certain people who are into this stuff. Yeah, it's like where's the where's the where's the culmination of all of it? There isn't any. It's real. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that kind of ties into what we're talking about, unfortunately, but also fortunately, but also unfortunately, mm-hmm. the mystery and the unending mystery that will always be omnipresent everywhere, Van Morrison style, when it comes to doing this kind of stuff. And so, whether it's the book. Um, talking about the men in black, but then also other stuff is known to be made up and hoaxed in that book or, or fabricated. It's like, well, now there's too many, now there's so many questions. Now there's a mystery, like what's real and what's not real, which is itself just inherently what the world of the paranormal, supernatural, and even the esoteric and mystical is all about. It's the never ending mystery. And, you know, thank God that it's a never-ending mystery on one hand, because without mystery, there is no joy for me in life. I, I wouldn't want to know all the answers. Right. There would be no more surprises. There'd no, That's why no... Unsolved Mysteries was so satisfying, right? Exactly. It wasn't like Solved Mysteries. It would have been a boring show then. Yeah, it would have been a totally boring show. Uh, everybody would have just fast-forwarded to the end. What happened? <laughs> Watch the last segment of Robert Stack's like, and it was a carbon monoxide detector the whole time. You know, or whatever. <laughs> it was just uh, a damn owl. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I think that's that's the beauty of the paranormal, but it also it's like the most frustrating aspect when it comes to being taken seriously in the scientific community. Uh, and it's like, why do... 
I don't think it matters to me. I mean, this is my opinion and you know, it might not be a popular one, but I don't need the scientific community validating me. Um, because this isn't the same thing. And exactly. And science is all is supposed to be the inquisitive, you know, the young inquisitive mind of all of the fields. Yet yeah, it can have the most closed-minded uh, when it comes to certain things. But and it's it's been proven throughout history that when science doesn't understand something uh, that people are experiencing, the default setting for that is, oh, they're fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. They're crazy. There's something wrong with them. They're mentally ill. And, you know, this is something that just recently happened where they discovered like the origins of a worldwide hum. Um, and it originates from the oceans and there's a vibration of the planet Earth itself. And a small percentage of people can actually hear it, right? But for years, for like, uh, you know, decades and decades and decades, people were called crazy. Science called these people crazy. Uh, right. the, you know, and uh, now that, you know, a hundred some years later, they're vindicated. But guess what? They're gone, but they've been, their memory has been vindicated maybe to a certain degree, but they were called crazy because science didn't understand what it was yet. So therefore it can't be real. Well, there was a, if I remember correctly, speaking of unsolved mysteries, there was an episode about hum in a specific city. And these people, they would go down like into like caves, uh, you know, like deep down into, I guess there were, maybe there were coal mines. I don't remember. It's been, was this in Taos? Was it the Taos home? Taos in Mexico? I don't think it was Taos. Kokomo, I it, maybe. I know there's like a couple famous ones, but yeah, anyway. I want to say it was the South, but they went down into these mines and even there they could still hear it. So, you know, because everybody's telling them like, oh, you're just hearing machinery or, you know, some people they say, you're just hearing electricity. You know, some people can hear electricity humming through the walls. Yeah, and it's, you know, the same way with, uh, the same way those people are crazy, even though they were years later vindicated in this specific thing about this worldwide hum. You know, people who see ghosts are hallucinating, they're crazy, they're schizophrenic, and, you know, they're, you know, or who can talk to the other side and maybe have pierced the veil, as we'd like to think, and maybe connected to source or channels or mediums. You know, that's all bullshit. It's not real. They're crazy. They, it's, you know, they just think they, they think they hear it. And it's like, well, because science can't prove it. So it's not real. Well, guess what? There's, you know, so science is done. Science figured everything out. I mean, that's... Right. That's arrogant, right? It's it's very arrogant. And and I love science and I love all the, you know, the the benefits and the luxuries science has so far afforded me in, in our lives. This is something I think about a lot when I'm watching like an old movie or like a documentary on something that's from like really old footage. Or you see like depictions, paintings, drawings of the way things were, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh, like castles and stuff like that, right? Without, you know, AC window units and all that shit or running water. It's like, oh, they didn't realize at the time how, you know, without luxury they were because they, they were yet to have it. Right. So, like, even the people in the castles with the nice sheets. You know, they were the ones who were like, oh, we've got it all, baby. You know what I mean? Like, like, how about those people living on the streets, literally living on the streets? They've got nothing. And then we would look at someone living in a castle without running water, you know, who had servants to boil our water for us and then pour it into a tub while we were sitting in there. Like, we would look at that as like, oh, man, what a drag that would be having to like wait for all this water to get heated up and then poured into from our servant or whatever, you know. And shitting in a bucket. 
Yeah, and shitting in a bucket and on you know, your bed. <laughs> you know, riding a horse everywhere uh, or walking. Nobody brushed their teeth. Exactly. And that's why I never want to travel in time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I always wonder like, 500 years from now, what are people looking back and being like, oh man, they live like animals? Yeah, can you believe Wi-Fi? They their phone around in their hands? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've got Wi Fi, bro. And do you think we live <laughs> like animals? Like, but, you know, if technology and, you know, everything else progresses at the same, in the same direction, if the arrow keeps pointing, I don't want to say forward because that indicates like good or, you know, better. Um, you know, it doesn't have to have that connotation. If the, if the arrow keeps pointing in the direction where it keeps going, um, you know, it is, it's inevitable that 500 years from now, people look back at us now and think, wow, they, oh, how they live like that. I mean, that, that had to be brutal. Right. That was one of my, at the end of the Mothman, like one of my, I guess you would say conclusions was this idea of like, we make these assumptions that, this is not true because um, like, for example, everybody says, well, Bigfoot is not real because we never found a dead Bigfoot. And I'm not going to lie. That's a pretty good argument. It, it has logic to it. But my thing is, is I believe that there are two worlds in the sense that there's the real world, tangible. And people confuse real with exist. Those are two different things. Real to me is tangible. Five senses and science is, a, is an extension of the five senses. But then you have the unreal world where things don't operate by those same principles. So like here, when something exists, it exists in the quote real world. But in the unreal or the weird or the strange, things can exist and then not exist and then maybe exist again. That they maybe don't have a color. So every time you see it, it's a different color. You know, like the rules are different there. It has a more trickster nature to it. So every time we try to prove something from the unreal with science... It's like trying to apply the rules of baseball to football. They're two different games. So it will never be quantifiable in that way, I don't think. That's interesting. I mean, we can understand that there's a score at the end, but um, maybe that's like a commonality. But you know, but outside of that, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to it all. But um, yeah, that's interesting. I do agree with you on, on that. And it's... I think the problem for a lot of people is, you know, we we figure out ways to entrench ourselves uh, to feel sane, to feel stable, right? to feel comfortable in like the way we view the world and the way we see things. And unexpectedness can really throw us for a loop. And uh, it's, it's, it kind of, it can cause great unease um, and, you know, fear, which can lead to anger, which leads to violence. And so when you or when anybody tries to share an unexplainable paranormal experience with someone that science can't explain for them um, before they're even done hearing the whole thing, people who are turned off to this or who are very skeptical and like, and there's a lot of people out there who are more than that. They're adverse to hearing things like this. They don't want to hear paranormal stories and almost as if it's like an affront to them. Um, yeah, because it's a challenge to their reality. Exactly, and whether they realize it or not, and it goes it goes the same way for all of us, myself included. When something is really challenging my view of what my reality is, um, you know, it's it's confrontational in its nature, 
um, even if the person delivering the message or trying to give me the information isn't being confrontational about it. It's inherently confrontational. So therefore, I'm going to be somewhat adverse to it, right? Um, even if I'm super fucking open-minded and I try to, you know, listen to everything, uh, that's not that's not to say that, you know, uh, you know, I don't have you know, I don't experience adversity when being challenged, because I do. Um, because I'm just a person like everybody else, as far as I can tell. Um so when you challenge someone's reality, um, you know, on a fundamental level of what they know to be real and concrete, because they can control that now. I mean, at least they know how to operate within that world and they know how to get the things that they want, they think, and they know how to move about. They know the rules of engagement with that reality. So when you present to them, this is the reality I'm experiencing and it's different from yours. And I'm telling you that it's the reality that we're all experiencing. Now it's like, wait a second. You're not just telling me a story about Bigfoot. You're not just telling me a story about a ghost. You're telling me that I don't understand the world I'm living in. And now I have to figure all this shit out. And then I have to figure out how to exist inside of this new reality. Right. It's like, it's like you knocked me out real in a split second. You like made me unconscious and transported me to another world. And now, now you wake me up and say, get to living, you know, figure now, figure out how to exist in this new world. And it's jarring. Um, it makes me wonder if that's why we have so many problems in the paranormal that lead to uh, race supremacy and fascism is that people, they, they enter themselves into this new reality and then they can't handle it. So they revert back to like ultimate quote unquote uh, rules of reality, you know, like, Oh, therefore there must be a rule to everything. This race must be good. This one must be bad. If they, if like, that's a snapping of the inability to deal with the new reality. Yeah. That could be interesting. Like it's like one step forward, two steps back. Yeah. It's like you revert back to something even I'm not saying good when I say the word safe, but safe in the sense of concrete rules for everything. Yeah, because I, I mean, I get it. Like when people are t- when talk about like, um, uh, I mean, I got to be careful the way I say. I mean, I don't have to be careful, but um, it's it's hard to say, say words that don't mean double things. Yeah, like <laughs> and talking about white supremacy specifically. I mean, in general, who doesn't want to feel special? Mm-hmm. That's what it taps into. It taps into a desire to feel special and better. I mean, we all love hearing, no matter what we're doing. Uh, like, let's say we're in a large group of people, and this large group of people that we're a part of is doing something. It doesn't matter what it is. We could be crocheting, we could be playing soccer, we could be writing short short fiction, whatever it is. Every single one of us in this group would love for someone in a position of quote unquote authority. To pull us aside at one point and say, you know what? Out of all these people, you're the best at writing this. You're the best. You're my best student, or you're really special out of all these groups. You're gifted. Um, there's something about you just naturally makes you a better soccer player. Um, you're great. You know what I mean? Um, we all want to. We all want to feel special in that way. Or like right. you're the most beautiful out of all of these people. Like, oh, that makes me feel so special. It makes me feel so good when I hear that. So, um, so when it comes to the idea of white supremacy, it taps into that very basic desire to feel 
good. And I mean, that's why there's such a backlash the last couple of years against, um, you know, people not even wanting to address the, uh, the issue of, you know, police brutality against African Americans, against black people, because, you know, the subject got switched to now it's disrespecting the troops. Well, the, you know, the brilliant move that that is on the part of those people who don't want to talk about the issue is now you've changed the issue. Um, so like people in my family back in Ohio, they hate Colin Kaepernick. You know what I mean? Um, and it's because they don't want to think about police brutality uh, because they don't experience it and they never have experienced it and they don't want to face that problem. So they lean into the distraction argument that has been presented to them. Now they don't have to. Now they don't have to deal with it. They don't have to, they don't have to address the idea that, that there's uh, inequality happening and that they're on the good side of it. Because I mean, as a white, straight white man in stand-up comedy, um, to sit here and act like I didn't enjoy the privilege that I was given and the access and the, you know, all that kind of stuff for ever since I first started 18 years ago is, you know, total bullshit. Um, and it wasn't until the last handful of years that, you know, that started to really get changed. And thank God. And it's no coincidence that stand up comedy is more popular than ever. Why is it more popular than ever? Because of the infusion of diversity in stand-up comedy. Um, there is no longer people, uh, you know... It's not token-based anymore, where it's like, yeah, white dudes, and then, oh, there's one chick and one black dude. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and it's operating from like a sense... Of, I mean, just the idea of calling someone ethnic um, means they're not white, right? Um, which means white is normal. White is the baseline, yeah, it's a normative statement. It's a normative statement. So the fact that we even have the word ethnic is, you know, shows you where we're launching from and everything, right? Um, so I don't know. I mean, you know, in the paranormal world, there's all these theories. There's millions of theories and millions of people telling you, you know, what aliens seeded us here or what hybrids we are with what aliens. And this is where, <coughs> excuse me, this is where it starts to get a little bit dicey sometimes is when you start hearing people talk, <coughs> excuse me, when you start hearing people talk about the different aliens uh, breeding with like humans early, like the first humans have created the different races of human. Mm -hmm. So they're basically, some of them may be resetting up this whole Aryan paradigm, you know, the purer blood. And, you know, there's this race that bled, uh, that bred with these aliens. Therefore they are the better. Yeah, yeah. Or these totally different aliens bred with the Neanderthals or whoever else and created black people. Yeah. Um, but the good aliens bred with blah, blah, blah and created yeah, the, the white people. the grays did this. And yeah, yeah. Those, those guys are lizards. Yeah. And so that's, that's where it gets... That starts where it's like, well, okay, what are we, where are you getting this information from other than just channeling it right from some source while you're in a meditation? Um, so it can be, you know into the world of the paranormal it's such a it's kind of like the wild wild west in that way where if anybody has an idea that can resonate at all you know you're given a microphone i mean all you have to do is start a podcast um you know and if it gets popular enough guess what now you're at the convention because you can draw you can bring numbers um which has happened so many times uh it doesn't matter what you're saying as long as you can get people through the turnstile as they used to say if people will buy tickets they don't you know some people don't give a shit about message as long as you're contributing to their financial betterment. And 
So, you know, there's that whole capitalism thing again. It doesn't matter what you're saying as long as you're making us money. And, you know, some people just want to make money. They don't want to truly investigate the world of the paranormal. They might have a passing. Oh my God, that startled me. <laughs> Sorry. Some guy just started up a leaf blower and the dog's pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> that, that just shocked me. Was, okay. I just watched Venom last night. I almost felt like Venom when like the death of the four, between four and 6,000. I, like, oh, I was just talking about that movie yesterday. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just watched it last night for the first time. Um, and a uh, big fan of Tom Hardy. But, uh, me too. Yeah, so I don't know, like I don't know where, and it's not my job to tell people who's who's full of shit and who's telling the truth. Um, you know, when it comes to this stuff, because it's it's virtually impossible in many cases to do so because you just don't know. Um, but you know, people's actions over a long period of time will show you um, what they're what they think of and or you know why they're doing certain things, and you know that's what you know that's what we can hope for is that you know our discernment will grow in time, and but. The world of paranormal, there's a new world being built. And um, that world includes, you know, diversified voices, um, inclusion, and, uh, you know, a lot less of this, uh, you know, kind of supremacy mindset as far as, you know, the orthodox that you mentioned earlier. Like David Wilcock and Corey Good, what they were so brilliant at doing as far as like from a financial aspect is making themselves. They position themselves as the experts, and if you had a government insider talking about a space pro- a secret space program or aliens, and if they didn't know who that insider was, you're lying because they know them all, and they're the guys that the government insiders come to. They are the mouthpiece, right? Like the way Trump says everything is fake news. So if you want real news, you got to follow my Twitter account. Exactly. You cut off all other sources of information and now you control the narrative all the time. It's a real fascist move. And so, you know, in that way, I'm not calling David Wilcock and Corey Good fascists, uh, but I am saying that what they did as far as the flow of information goes, they cut it all off and tried to make everyone believe that unless it was coming from them, you couldn't trust it. And that's a problem. Right. Because fascist governments will... Uh, start clamping down on books and uh, at the time radio or television broadcasts because they're doing the same thing. It's that same ideology. It's that, like you said, come to me, I'll tell you what's real. And therefore you're in control of all avenues of information. Yeah. And anytime someone um, really tries to suppress uh, an opposing voice, um, like with extreme measures, like as long as that, like if that voice isn't personally attacking them, I mean, that's one thing to be like, you know, disparaged or, you know, liable or, or, you know, all those legal terms for like really trying to tarnish someone's reputation and like, you know, or whatever, affect them in a way like, but like getting personal and like doing it in a way that's, you know, below the belt or illegal. When someone's trying to like, like dox is the word a lot of people will use. Like when like a fascist government, like if you speak out against them, you will be silenced. Um, so, you know, when, when these people in positions of power try to silence and actively try to silence people who are speaking out against them or simply just, you know, a better example would be simply asking questions like, please provide, can you please provide me some proof of these, you know, enormous claims you're making? Um, please provide me the tiniest shred of evidence of this thing that you say, uh, I need to believe. 
And when those people are attacked for simply asking for a tiny bit of information, that should send off some alarm bells. And that's exactly. what ha- and that's what happens with like the Wilcock and the Corey Good situation, where Corey Good starts doxing people. Um, and granted, those you know I don't know all the details of that because I try to stay out of the paranormal drama, the the drama rama. Um, but like it's uh you know I've never been into the drama rama, skating around this you know the roller skate rink, just fucking talking shit to everybody, like and listening to people talk shit. Um, but it's you know, well that's a, a way of distracting people from the truth as well. Exactly. You know, you let them get caught up in these the, these petty battles, and then you don't have to worry about like what you were saying. Like, where's that shred of evidence? Yeah, and at the end of the day, we all just want to know the truth, man. Like, you know, and whenever there's people willing to believe and willing to listen, there's somebody who realizes it's an opportunity to make a lot of money, and or whatever else, or you know, fame or something like that. But if you think you're going to get this, is the funniest thing to me. Like, me and I'll joke around with some friends. It's like Bigfoot ain't making you rich, dog. Like nothing can exist without its opposite. Like from a basic level, how would you ever know what beauty is um, if you hadn't seen something ugly? Right. How would you know happiness if you didn't have to go through sadness? And and this understanding that everything that we perceive in this world has maybe not poles, but it has like an ebb and a flow to it, you know? And as cliche as it was in the 90s to be into yin-yangs, that it's just the most beautiful graphic because neither side exists without the other and within each side lies the seed for the other side's existence. Right. Yeah, within, within, within good, there's a little seed of evil. Right. And actually, I shouldn't, I shouldn't use that because a lot of people think that the only thing the black and white means is good or evil. But within light, there's a seed of darkness. Within darkness, there's a seed of light. Within the male, there's a seed of the female. Within the female, there's a seed of the male. Right. And it's a, there's a gradient. Within a dark gray, there's some light gray. You know, it's, I, I guess that, that's kind of a silly way to put it. But I, I also, it's, it's tough imagery because a lot of people take away from it that there's two poles to everything, two extremes. Right. But use politics as a great example. If you go far enough to the extremes, you start to end up on the other side again. Right. Yeah. Politics is like a belt. Yeah. You know, you start at the buckle, but if you go around the back, everybody meets on the back end. So I can't tell you exactly where I was turned on to the Yijing, um, but it may have been my older brother, but I'm not sure. Um, But it, it grew out of that curiosity and digging in it. There was a time in college when I thought I was going to do my own transliteration of the Tao Te Ching. I probably still have that unfinished project out there somewhere, but not knowing Mandarin or any of the other languages that it might have been translated into, it would have been a, a transliteration of translations, which I don't know. It was a fun project and it got me to dig deep on it and really think about that stuff. But from a uh, philosophical standpoint, it's something that I've never really shaken. And it's helped me not feel like I know everything. And to know that the moment that you think you know something is just the moment that you've stopped looking into it. Right. Well, one of the things that I love about divination in particular is, in, in a way, it is the opposite of science in the sense that... um not that I don't like science. I right. love science. But there is 
a need for interpretation, that you have to be an active participant. Science doesn't need you to be an active participant. You know, in the sense that science is about observation, right? Mm-hmm. What you see is what you see. And the interpretation comes in when they redo the tests. You know, we've, we did this six times. Uh, this happened four out of six times. What does that mean? It means we need to test it more. Whereas when you pull something from a book, you know, like Bibliomancy, or you read um, something from the I Ching, or you read a tarot card, it has many meanings. And the meaning is flexible. And it allows you to, to move it where you need it to be. Because it's not, it's not trying to offer fact. Right. Um, like, for example, the Kabbalah. One of the things, one of the things that draws me to Kabbalah, in particular, both the Q Kabbalah and the K Kabbalah. One would be the Jewish mysticism of Kabbalah, and then the Hermetic version of it, which would be the or the alchemic version of Kabbalah, which is what the difference in the spellings are for for the people listening. But one of the things that they say in there is that your experience should always form the meaning of the reading or of the interpretation that you're getting, never the other way around. So if I were to put that in the terms of tarot card, because it's a little bit simpler in the sense that I don't have to explain all the spheres of the Kabbalah. If I pull death, if, if I allowed the card to tell me about reality, if it was just fact, then that would always mean death. Mm-hmm. But instead, I look at, the, uh, at this situation in front of me and I go, how does the concept of death, of something ending, fit? And then I shape that to the experience. The experience mm-hmm. is always the most important thing, not what's on the card. That's what's important to me about divination because it's, it's an active process. It's engaging your mind and your intuition. Yeah, it's so whatever type of divination you may have tried to get into, if you if you just, you know, throw the shells or whatever, and you're supposed to get this answer to your question. Like if you think that it's some magical being out there, I don't think that we're on the same page. But there's still there's another kind of magic where just allowing something completely random to come in causes you a perspective shift that can help you come up with an answer to your question. Right. Well, I think, yeah, a lot of people, and I, I think some of this may come from, um, I'm not blaming them, but I'm just saying it may come from Christianity. The idea that these divination tools are communication with, I think originally they would say it was communication with the devil, like the Ouija board. But then over time, that became communication with spirits. Um, you know, Madame Blavatsky and, and, and such also had some influence on people thinking they were communication with spirits. But I think really what, what's being asserted when you really look at the vastness of divination tools from different cultures, first of all, it's, it's communication with your own mind and your own intuition and your own ability to think and to process. Right. But also, um, not only is it opening you up to chaos, which is something that you mentioned in um, when we were talking about the cards you sent me, which I haven't even mentioned yet. 
We'll get, in that, get into that in a second. But it's also opening you up to the possibility of something beyond that. And I don't mean spirits necessarily as just the unreal in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, synchronicities. Yeah. Um, you know, like messages that are... Like, like you said, they might not necessarily be associated with an invisible being of some sort, but there is an intelligence of some sort. It could be. Uh, sometimes I wonder, like, even with just meditation or just, you know, just being quiet for a while and watching things. And then suddenly something pops into your head that's an answer to something you were toiling over two days ago. And what's great about that is that maybe that intelligence you're communicating with is your subconscious mind that's been working on all of these things and all these connections that just lay waiting for you to discover them. But you never, your conscious mind has never dipped in the request for that information. Right. And that's, once again, going back to something I've reiterated multiple times in this conversation, like any of these things are possible, but not all of them are true. Mm. But to but to be able to have a tool that opens you up to that many possibilities is of use. Even at, at the very least, if it's just I'm figuring this shit out myself, mm. And there is nothing beyond what I can see in front of me. It's still useful to use. Yeah, it's always useful. I I guess I don't want to use an absolute statement like always, but it's quite often useful to inject a little chaos into something. Right. Which I should say now. So Vinny said he was going to send me a present. He didn't tell me what it was. And what he sent me is Oblique Strategies by Brian Eno, which is something I've wanted for a long time. Um, do you want to explain? I'm not what they surprised. Are? I'm not surprised you said you wanted that. I thought, <laughs> I thought this is perfect. I have an extra copy, and every it was one of those synchronicities. I guess the conversations we were having, and I had it laying around, and I thought this is, this is exactly what you would want. So what what do they call it? Um, 100 worthwhile dilemmas, right? Yep. So it's a it's a deck of cards. I have it here because I thought you might get into it. Um, and just. I'll pull a couple of random cards to give people out there an idea. Um, yeah, give the read, game away. I'll read, the, I'll read the intro card too before you do that. Okay, um, go for it. Do it. I happen to have it in front of me. These cards evolved from separate observations of the principles underlying what we were doing. By the way, this is Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt. Um, sometimes they were recognized in retrospect, intellect, uh, catching up with the intuition. Sometimes they were identified as they were happening. Sometimes they were formulated. These can be used as a pack, a set of possibilities being continuously reviewed in the mind, or by drawing a single card from the shuffled pack when the dilemma occurs in a working situation. In this case, the card is trusted, even if its appropriateness is quite unclear. They are not final, as new ideas will present themselves and others will become self-evident. So that's the card you get with it. Right, and that could honestly be a great description for trying to explain to someone who has a very black and white view of a divination tool where either you believe in magic and that you're talking to a spirit or it's complete, utter, useless bullshit when yeah. the truth is actually somewhere in between. That's the first time I've read that and I was struck while I was reading that how much it sounds like you could put that exact same thing to Tarot or mm. to I Ching. Like the words, he's using the same words in there. Intuition, um, formulation. Wow. I'm not surprised though. Brian Eno is kind of in touch with that kind of stuff. He's the first person I've heard call it Tarot. Oh, really? What do other people call it? 
just taro. Oh, just just taro. a difference of accent. Oh yeah, might be California accent here. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe I was saying it wrong my whole life. I never really got that far into. into I thought you were going to say that you you knew people that called it Tarak. <laughs> I've no, seen no. people. I've seen that written. So read a couple of the cards. These so the, these are. To clarify too, I, I thought the the card would clarify that a little bit more. This is for creative endeavors. This is originally what it's created for. So like you're making an album and you're in a dead spot. Yeah, they started with music, but it's it's kind of branched out and it's it's generic enough to work in any in any field. I I can't pull the card that I want, but one of them that I thought was really interesting was it was something like destroy the best idea, and I thought, okay, if I followed this card. To a T, if I took it very literally, I could really crush the essence of all the work that I've done. <laughs> or I could just do the thought experiment and say, what if I did kill the best thing? Yes. Would the rest of it hold up? Oh, wait, I have a lot of useless stuff in this project. Now that I've taken the spotlight thing and put it to the side as if it didn't exist and I realized the rest of this doesn't hold up anymore. Now I know where the work needs to be done. Well, yeah, that's very akin to um, Stephen King's Kill Your Darlings. Oh, yeah, and, there you go. And Stephen King's Kill Your Darlings, a lot of what he's saying is, that, at least um, the way he's explained it, is sometimes when you're writing, you you get more clever than you need to be. And if you, if there's something in your writing that you, you find precious, like, I love this scene, this scene is so good, get rid of it. Mm. Because you probably don't need it. Because you've kept it because you like it, but it might not actually fit the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true in film too. Um, it's really hard at first, even when I was just doing YouTube videos and stuff, I would I go back and watch something that I'd done a few months before and think, this is boring. I just really liked the shot. And so I found a way to cram it in there and it has nothing to do with anything. Right. You know, I just fell in love with it and assumed that others would, but out of the context that I carried with it, it's useless. Exactly. Yeah, like, oh, this is how often do you do that with photos too? Like, oh, people do it on Instagram. Here's a beautiful photo of a sunset. Well, it's it's extraordinary to you because you're there experiencing the sunset. Mm-hmm. But to us, it's just one of a hundred other sunsets that we've seen in our feed today. Yeah. Some people may connect with it. It's the bane of the photographer, right? You can't capture what you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. You can't generally even come close. And I think that the best photographers just find a way to lead someone to that, the story of what you're experiencing. Right. Well, yeah, I think like for me, when I, I see something, I'm, by no means a great photographer of any sort, but I like playing with photography. And a lot of times what I'm seeing is just a perception. Like, oh, I'm standing here and for some reason, that tree looks awesome. And all I try to do is like, is there a way I can take a picture where it looks as awesome in the picture as it looks right now? Mm. You know, because you're... Once you introduce frame, you're losing some of that as well because... Like maybe it looks awesome because I can see like the way it fits in this panorama of my eyeball. Yeah. Or I can see the I can see the depth up the tree and all of the interlocking patterns and none of that's gonna translate as soon as I flatten it all. 
Yeah, exactly. It's just going to look like veins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's that's always for me. That's always the fun challenge. That's why usually when I when I take photos, I actually I rely on. I didn't even think about this. In a way, I treat photography almost the way I would treat divination. You know, like you pull the tarot card, you deal with the tarot card you pulled. With mm-hmm. photography, I take maybe at most three shots. And if I don't get it, I don't get it and move on. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, I take one shot. So when I'm walking, I go, that's cool. Frame it the way I want, take the picture, and then I don't look at it. And then when I get home, I look at whatever I've taken pictures of and go, keep that one, keep that one, garbage, 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 and move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the time I'm I'm very similar with it. Um a lot of my photography is done, you know, like walking from the car to the place that we're going with my wife half a block ahead of me already. I'll <laughs> just try to squeeze one out because <laughs> I saw something that caught my eye. <laughs> That's, and then you know, it's not until later that I get a chance to look back and say, that was a waste of my time. Well, that's where the intuition thing comes in too, like trusting your intuition. Wow, I never really made the connection between photography and divination, but they are very similar. Mm-hmm. When you when you are, well, I'll, I'll say when I am, not you, um, because I'm projecting. But when I'm verbally you, <laughs> when I'm walking, I see things, and you know, as anybody else, but as, as in particular, the photographer, like that's a picture, that's a picture. But there's an impulse to, do I take, is it worth taking my phone out for, or is it worth taking my camera out for? Mm-hmm. And you, you only get good pictures when you stop fighting that impulse and you go, I'm just going to take a picture every time that I feel that impulse. Right. The answer to that question is always yes. Yeah. Even if you fail at it, you learn something, right? Like, Oh, you look at the picture later and you go, why does this suck? Oh, because I cropped the top of the fucking tree. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I torture myself sometimes just to, you know, maybe we're driving out to see family and they live about an hour away. And along the drive, I see all these places and I think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take note of that. I'm texting myself right now to come back and check this place out. And then... Maybe weeks later, I go back to that place and I'm like, there's nothing here. What the hell did I see? You know, the light was different. The weather was different. It was a different time of year. It was a different time of day. Like one of the best pieces of photography advice I ever got was that if you ever think you want to take the picture, take it now because all of the things that have to come together for that moment will never happen again. Even if you came the exact same second of the day tomorrow. Absolutely. It's shit that happens with books. You ever, you know, they have a list of like, oh, I want to read this book. I want to read this book. And then you're going through the list like a year later. You're like, okay, I was, what the fuck? Why would I want to read that book? Should have read it then because it made sense to you for some reason. Now you have no idea why you wanted to read that particular book about pig farming. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have this problem of starting books I don't finish. And oh, yeah. So uh, part of 2020, I started doing the trying out the bullet journal method, which people are probably familiar with. But if they're not, just go look it up. It's just kind of a tracking what you do every day kind of thing. Um, And I've always been really into journaling. I've just never tried this particular method. Mm -hmm. And they have this concept of collections where you might have a page where you're tracking a certain habit or whatnot. So for mine, I put together a reading list. And on the left side of the page here, I have all of the books that I want to read. 
that I haven't started yet. And then on the right, I have all the books that I'm in midstream of, whether they be an audiobook, <laughs> an ebook, or a physical book. And I'm looking at the progress here. And at a certain point, I know that it's been a month and I've checked maybe two more off of the list. So I'm going to have to just drop some of these. You, know? you do sometimes. You just have to. Like, I'm, it's like I, you ruin a book sometimes by reading it when you're not in the right place. Yeah. I did that with 